and welcome to The Family Planning Files, a podcast with the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In today's episode, we'll be providing an overview of substance use disorder and medications for opioid use disorder treatment for clinicians who work in family planning settings. Our guest today is Dr. Mishka Turplin, MD, MPH, who is the Associate Medical Director at Friends Research Institute and Deputy Chief Clinical Officer at the Department of Behavioral Health for the District of Columbia. He is also an adjunct faculty member at the University of California, San Francisco, a consultant for the National Center on Substance Abuse and Child Welfare, and the Addiction Medicine Specialist for Virginia Medicaid. Dr. Turplin is board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and addiction medicine and has over two decades of work and advocacy that centers around the intersection of reproductive health and substance use disorders. Welcome to the show, Dr. Turplin. We're so excited to have you here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So first, Dr. Turplin, let's start with some definitions for our our listeners, just so we're all on the same page. Can you describe the differences between substance use, substance misuse, and addiction, or what some people call SUD or substance use disorder? So let's start with the obvious, uh, which is, you know, most people have used a substance to which some people develop an addiction. So substance use is self-evidence. It's using a substance. Addiction or substance use disorder, uh, which is the DSM, Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the diagnostic term for addiction. I'll talk about that later, but that's a minority of people. And then there's stuff in between. Like People can use a substance that can confer harm or risk or in a way that's problematic without having an addiction. You know, think about like drunk driving or soft tissue infections from injecting drugs or COPD from smoking cigarettes. All of those can be harmful and risky consequences of substance use without, you know, necessarily or categorically being addiction. So then what is addiction? You know, addiction we think of as a brain-centered condition, but the symptoms are really behaviors, craving, compulsive use, and a salient feature being, you know, continued use despite adverse consequences. Really knowing you're doing something that's harmful to yourself and harmful to others and being unable to stop doing that. And now that we understand all these terms, what does SUD look like today in America, especially for patients who might be seen through Title X or other family planning programs? So there's a lot of really interesting stuff about addiction. Like the question that was behind your first question was, you know, why do some people become addicted and others don't? That's not the topic of this podcast, but I think this answer touches on that to some extent. So we know that the earlier somebody uses a substance, the more likely they are to develop a substance use disorder. And we also know that the age range of more common substance use is really adolescent to through, you know, young adults. And that tends to be, you know, the age range that overlaps with the people who seek care in Title X programs. So one thing is, you know, the population of people who are seeking reproductive health services through Title X is also the population that uses more substances than 
other populations do and are using, oftentimes maybe misusing, and some of whom will have addiction, but it's an opportunity to sort of intervene identify people with misuse, put stuff into play so that those individuals actually do not develop the disease of addiction. And then for those who have an addiction to identify them, treat them and refer them to care. One issue is kind of like, why don't we think about this? There are exceptions. There certainly are Title X clinics that are providing behavioral health care in general and addiction treatment in particular. But we have, you know, these like artificially siloed care structures in the United States. We have a separation. Reproductive health is sort of separated out. We certainly separate what we might call somatic from behavioral health, mental health from other things. And these silos are built for our convenience. And they're also historical in, you know, how we decided to or how the universe was cut up, how conscious it was or not, I guess, is a question. Um, But that's not how people experience health and illness. And people can experience the relationship between sexual and reproductive health and substance use is complex. And unless we provide integrated care, we, you know, sort of perpetuate these false distinctions and silos. And kind of going from that, is there a difference between the sexes in terms of substance use? I know the vast majority of patients seen in Title X and many other family planning clinics do tend to be women. And if there are any special concerns around substance use disorder and women that our clinicians should know about. Certainly. So they're both sex-based and also gender-based differences in uh, substance use, misuse, and in addiction. One of the sort of frames for understanding comes from alcohol research, but it is valid for other substance use disorders as well. And that's this idea of telescoping. And that's the trajectory from use to misuse to addiction is shortened in women compared to men. So that means they might start use later, but they proceed more rapidly to addiction. And when they present for care, their disease is more severe. So that their course of the illness is shortened compared to men. Generally speaking, in the United States, men tend to use more substances than women do, although there are differences by substance and that gender difference is, is, is narrowed over time. I know we're going to be talking about opioids, but opioids are one medication when prescribed that are prescribed more to women than to men. Same would be true of benzodiazepines are prescribed more to women than they are to men. And today, when we look at people presenting for treatment for opioid use disorder, they are equal or slight majority women compared to men. Well, that brings us to our next question really, really well. Within the realm of all the substances that can be misused or lead to substance use disorder, we have opioid use disorder, OUD, which has been in the news quite a bit over the past several years. And you mentioned there is that kind of gender disparity between men and women for that opioid use and misuse. While the U.S. has been hit really hard, especially within particular regions, the good news is there are medications that can treat patients who are experiencing opioid use disorder. Some people uh, call these MOUDs or medications for opioid use disorder. Would you review those for us? Yes, certainly. So there are three medications that are approved by FDA with strong evidence base for the treatment of opioid use disorder. There's methadone, there's buprenorphine, and there's naltrexone. 
Methadone is the oldest medication. It's been uh, utilized and studied really 60s and onward. It is only available for the treatment of opioid use disorder from an opioid treatment program, which is a federally designated place. Anyone with prescribing authority can write a prescription for methadone for the treatment of pain. Nobody can write a prescription for methadone for the treatment of addiction to opioids. It can only be dispensed from a licensed opioid treatment program in liquid form. So it's regulated differently than almost any other medication in the United States. Despite this, it's considered one of the 50 essential medications um, by the World Health Organization. The second medication is buprenorphine. It can be dispensed through an opioid treatment program, but it can also be prescribed, but only by people who have taken extra training, which is eight hours for physicians. And recently that authority was expanded to include PAs and NPs, uh, and they need 24 hours of extra training. And then you get what's called an X waiver. You have a special DEA X number that allows you to prescribe most of the time it's prescribed in a sublingual formulation, but recently there is an extended release monthly injection. And in the next six months or so, there will be a second company is bringing an extended release formulation to market, which will also have a weekly as well as a monthly formulation. Then the third medication is naltrexone. Naltrexone is an opioid antagonist, so it blocks um, the opioid system and it's not scheduled so anyone can prescribe it. It's available in an oral formulation, a pill that's taken daily, or a monthly extended release injection. Now, I know there are quite a lot of misconceptions and even stigmas about medications used for opioid use disorder out there. Can you tell us a little bit about what the evidence really says about medications that are used to treat opioid use disorder and the benefits for patients using those? Yeah, so I think one of the common stigmas is this idea that you're replacing one drug for another, quote unquote. And I think that rests upon, you know, a fundamental misunderstanding of what addiction is and actually a confusion of dependence with addiction. Previously, I described addiction as brain-centered condition, but the symptoms are behaviors. Dependence is a physiologic, a biological response, which means when you stop something, you have withdrawal symptoms. That is certainly true of opioids. That's true of prescribed opioids. That's true of heroin. That's true of methadone. That's true of buprenorphine. It's also true of a lot of medications to which people cannot develop addictions, antidepressants, antihypertensive agents, decongestants. When you stop it, you get a rebound congestion. Withdrawal is a pharmacologic, biological principle. Addiction is a behavioral condition. These are two separate things. People develop dependence to methadone and buprenorphine, but rarely addiction to them. So that's, you know, so scientifically rests on sort of falsehood. The evidence to support medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder is extensive. And in fact, we know, and I'll give the example with buprenorphine, but the same is true of methadone, is that we can map the levels in the blood, the concentration of the medication to controlling withdrawal symptoms. 
So for buprenorphine, that's about one nanogram per deciliter. Controlling cravings for a substance, and cravings can drive use and can drive like a recurrence of addiction, and that's roughly like two nanograms per deciliter. And then the classic, you know, from the original methadone literature, people talk about an opioid blockade that the medication provides an opioid blockade, which means if you take an opioid on top of the medication, there's no effect. So it blocks, you know, both the positive and the negative reinforcing effects of opioids, which is part of, you know, the neuroscience of of addiction. And that you need like a slightly higher level of plasma level to achieve an opioid blockade. So all of those medicines, you know, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone provide a blockade. Naltrexone does not treat withdrawal, but all can treat cravings. And so we sort of titrate the dose based upon first withdrawal, then cravings, and then blockade if somebody uses. And we know that the longer people stay on medication, the more likely they are to remain abstinent and in recovery. An older description of addiction is that it's a biopsychosocial spiritual condition. And so speaking to those other domains, we know people who are adherent with their medication are more likely to participate in their communities through volunteerism or other forms of citizenship. They're more likely to you know, have a job and stay at a job. They're less likely to get arrested and be incarcerated or reincarcerated. And so there's a multiplicity of you know, sociological benefits beyond the individual as well. But I think the question that you're asking somewhere too is, or what people ask is, well, how long does somebody need to be on medication for? So how long should somebody be on medication for opioid use disorder? My answer is going to sound initially like a cop-out. It depends. We say opioid use disorder. We use a singular to describe what is probably a plural condition. There are probably different subtypes of addiction that we just have not yet described. There certainly are people who need to remain on medication. If they stop the medication, the disease recurs. There's other people that we can stabilize over a period of time, and I'll describe that period in a moment. After stabilization, the disease goes into remission and it never recurs. And then there's everybody else in between. And we actually have no way of knowing a priori who is, you know, has which subtype of addiction. So what we do know is one of the things that happens in the brain for people with addiction is a sort of denuding of the dopamine system. And we can see this on imaging technologies. And people with untreated addiction have sort of markedly decreased dopamine activity in the brain. And it really takes two years before that dopamine system heals. But when it heals, it looks exactly like people who never had addiction in the first place. So it completely recovers and heals, but it takes time. So two years, I think, is a decent endpoint to propose as being like sort of a minimal period of time for uh, medication. And we know the longer people stay on medication, the more likely they're going to remain in recovery. And we know from population-based studies that people who are, you know, remain on medication for two years, or the rate of recurrence is less than 20%, so decent, but not <laughs> excellent. And so for those reasons, when people ask me, you know, how long do I need to be on this medicine for? I say all of that. I say it depends. And I say, you know, I'd, I'd like us to stay on the medication for at least two years, and then we can evaluate. 
As a caveat, what I just said is a bit of a theoretical construct in that most people with addiction don't receive treatment. And most people definitely don't receive chronic management for the chronic condition of addiction. So people say addiction is a chronic recurring illness which it might be, but I would say we've only ever provided episodic care. So the question is, is addiction chronic and recurring because that's its nature? Or is it chronic and recurring because we give care, we withdraw care, we give care, we withdraw care? Is it mirroring the care environment or is it inherent in the disease state itself? Well, all of that sounds really interesting. And But going back to some sort of those access issues, talking about, you know, chronic versus episodic, a lot of patients, as you noted, don't receive care or they don't receive that ongoing two-year minimum for a variety of reasons. And so care is just really hard to access. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, so most of these data come from the National Survey of Drug Use and Health, which is an annual survey of people in the United States that's weighted towards actually the age range of people who seek care in Title X clinics. And from that, we know that roughly only 11% of people who meet criteria for any substance use disorder report receipt of treatment for it. Now, that number is slightly higher for opioid use disorder, in part due to all of the attention to the opioid crisis and the marshalling of federal and state monies to provide treatment, as well as reflective of the success of medication treatment for opioid use disorder. And maybe 20 to 25 percent of people with opioid use disorder or who meet criteria for opioid use disorder report receipt of treatment. So the majority of people don't. Now, looking more closely at those data, we see a lot of the people who don't receive treatment don't think that they have a problem. They met criteria through the survey because they answered a whole series of questions that map onto the DSM OUD criteria. But on a different set of questions, they say they don't think that they have a problem, which to me speaks to the role of clinical care environments. <laughs> like if that had not been a survey, but that had been conducted in a clinical care setting, or it could be reflected back by the practitioner. Oh, you know, you meet criteria for an opioid use disorder. What do you think of that? Or something like that. I think that would also help get people access to treatment. But it's not just that people don't know they have the problem or don't think that they have the problem. It's also that treatment just doesn't exist. We talked a little bit about the difference between methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone and how they're delivered. Ideally, drug treatment program should provide all three. It is like a tiny fraction of drug treatment programs that do provide all three. There are data that, you know, residential treatment programs in the United States, less than half provide any medication. And when you look at the number of people who are wavered to prescribe buprenorphine, if everyone prescribed at their cap, which I hadn't talked about, like people are limited to how many patients they can prescribe for, but if everyone prescribed at their cap, there would still be at least a million people in the United States who could not get medication. And most people don't prescribe, even who have an X waiver, and almost nobody prescribes at their cap. So there's a lot of structural barriers to access to medication that also need to be addressed. And to kind of bring it back home to Title X a little bit more, pretty much all our listeners work solely within the realm of family planning. So they're probably not going to get that extra training, that X waiver, etc. 
So why is it so important for them to understand medications used for opioid use disorder and substance use disorder in general? Well, one reason is hopefully they are seeing more patients who are receiving medication for opioid use disorder as well as other medics. So they should be familiar with the medications that the patients that they see present. But beyond that, I mentioned how the care is siloed in the United States. And we have these behavioral health over in one place and reproductive health somewhere else and you know chronic disease management maybe somewhere else. But that's not how people experience health, illness, wellness, et cetera. And there's a resonance between behavioral health and other conditions. And we know this for any two conditions that have ever been studied together. I think perhaps the classic example is depression and hypertension. So people who have both depression and hypertension, if the depression is not treated, the cost of care is three or fold higher. And it's not because of the cost of care of depression. It's the cost of care of poorly managed hypertension. So people with substance misuse and or addiction may not be as adherent to other medications. They may be more likely to acquire you know, a sexually transmitted infection and then get reinfected. And they may not take their medication. And, and they may not show up for clinic. You know, there's all this stuff about clinical care that if you don't address behavioral health, not only are you not doing the patient a service, but you're increasing, I think, the burden of sort of like burnout, which contributes to like bias and judgment and discrimination in the healthcare setting. So I think thinking about how reproductive health resonates with behavioral health in general and the role of substance, you know, both misuse in the negative side, but also like recovery in the positive side, how that can affect both positively and negatively sexual and reproductive health is really essential to provide what we all say we want to provide, which is holistic, person-centered, and evidence-based care. And just to kind of get our clinicians off on the right foot in integrating that, you mentioned also earlier that people might need to hear from their clinician versus just from a survey about their substance use that might actually make an impact in terms of them recognizing that there's an issue to be addressed. What are some good strategies our listeners can use in their own clinical practices to screen and refer patients who may benefit from medications for opioid use disorder or other substance use disorder treatment services? Well, let me define terms again and to mark a distinction between screening, what you're asking me about, what, what I think is super important and testing, which tends to happen. And screening is, you know, talking to a patient using a validated instrument to assess something. And testing is a laboratory test of a biological specimen, let's say urine for the presence or absence of drug metabolites. So what we're really talking about is screening and not testing. So screening, it means having a conversation with a patient. It means using a validated instrument. I think some of the principles of screening would be really asking permission, asking, is it okay if I ask you some questions about drinking, smoking, and other drugs? And if the person says no, not asking and respecting what they say. And if they say yes, then you can, you know, use a validated instrument or sometimes open-ended questions. You know, do you have any concerns about your drinking? 
they have any questions about how this might affect your contraceptive method or whatever. And, you know, open-ended questions that allow the person to really lead the conversation and you to help them fill in the gaps as needed. So I think that that is an essential domain of wellness and one that certainly just the way sexuality is an essential domain of wellness, like substance use is, you know, part of wellness too. And so asking about that. However, this always surprises me. People in drug treatment who work in drug treatment are totally comfortable asking people questions about drug use, illegal activities, and et cetera, the sensitive topics. But they're hesitant to talk about the sensitive topics of reproductive and sexual health. Providers in the reproductive health space are very comfortable talking about sensitive topics related to sexual health, sexuality, partners, this, that, all that stuff. But they're reluctant to talk about the sensitive topics related to substance use and addiction. So they're similar in that we're talking about domains that are quote unquote sensitive, but they're different in that, you know, people have their familiar sensitivity and their unfamiliar sensitivity. So I like to think when we talk about integrated care, at least integrated assessment, that reproductive health providers are more capable, let's say, of uptake of behavioral health integration because of that sort of comfort with sensitive topics in general already. But the simplest way to kind of answer your question, I think this is something that many reproductive providers do, is really just empathy, like being aware that, you know, people who use drugs, people with addiction, experience judgment, experience discrimination, certainly within healthcare settings. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that we resist that. And one way is through the practice of empathy, of really, you know, sitting with a person, making eye contact, asking questions, being legitimately concerned for their health and their well-being. And in that space, you know, discussing substance use and et cetera. So you talked a little bit about the importance of empathy and how that can be really important in just opening up that conversation and doing that screening or assessment. What are some other ways that family planning clinicians and even other staff who work in clinics, so people who work in reception or health educators, can do to reduce that stigma and even affirm a patient's choice to seek treatment if that is what they want? From a systems perspective, I think it's knowing what your local resources are, knowing what your, you know, referral sources are and et cetera. And in terms of practicalities, you know, this assessment needn't be by the physician or the NP or the prescriber. One concern always in public health programming in this topical area is that we put just more and more screening burdens on so-called frontline providers. And that's true. And that's unfortunate. And I think that's like the wrong way to go about doing it. I think you need to think critically about who your care team is and what they do and involve everyone as much as possible. Like everyone should be like learning and working and doing. And that means it might, you know, the front desk staff can do some of this work. That means that a rooming patients can do some of this work. And I think that makes everyone more invested in the health and wellness of the patients and more involved in the overall mission. And that kind of collaborative work, I think, you know, translates very well in behavioral health assessment and intervention. Things like brief interventions, anyone can really be trained to do that. 
So how do you get to there? I will say, unfortunately, some, many, this is a bit of a gross generalization, but I do think that in a lot of the public health response to the opioid crisis, uh, reproductive health clinics have been neglected and have not necessarily been seen as sites of funding and programming and training. And that's unfortunate. It's a real missed opportunity. But the clinics that have themselves stood up, gotten trained, and even, you know, people gotten able to prescribe buprenorphine, that they've been, you know, incredibly successful in doing so, I think. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, it's super important for family planning clinicians to just be familiar with what medications their patients might be on because they almost certainly will, if not already, see patients who are in treatment for substance use disorder, opioid use disorder. And what are some good ways providers can support those patients? Because as you said, two years minimum, that's a long time. They're going to see that patient probably more than once. So what are some things that clinicians can do to support the patient and of course support the clinicians who are treating the patient for substance use disorder? Yeah, so I think one way to get knowledgeable about the medication is to actually take a course, the training course to become wavered to prescribe buprenorphine. Like the purpose of the course is so that you get an X waiver so that you can prescribe. But even if you're not going to prescribe or practice in a place where prescribing is not possible, the course itself is one of the best ways to get education on what is addiction, what is treatment, and what is recovery. Most of us had absolutely no training on on this in you know medical school or residency. And people coming out of training now might have a tiny little bit, but it might be less than the eight hours for the MD or DO course. So one reason to get wavered is not for the waiver, but for the education behind it. Other ways to support patients is really, I think, understanding what medication is, why you know people are using it, being able to, if you're not prescribed, at least provide a bridge prescription. I think it's quite common that patients present in reproductive health environments and they run out of their antidepressants or their hypertensive medication and you write them a bridge prescription to last them until whenever it is that they're next scheduled to see their primary care provider. You could do the same thing with buprenorphine. There's no reason why you couldn't bridge it just like you do any other medication. In fact, you should. And then it's like understanding. I think everyone who works with patients knows this, but you know, I've learned so much more from sitting with patients and working with them than I ever have from books or learning or trainings. So talking with people about substance use, addiction, and recovery is just like this fantastic opportunity for self-education. So kind of to wind up a little bit, where are some good places for our listeners to go if they're looking to learn some more for themselves or to provide education for their patients in terms of substance use disorder or medications used for opioid use disorder? There's a couple of publications that I would say are top of the line. (laughs) Maybe. So one is the ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, has what they call the National Practice Guideline. It's free, it's downloadable, it's focused on medication for opioid use disorder uh, in particular. I think it was updated again rather recently, and that's a great resource. The second resource would be from the National Academies of Medicine, Science, and Engineering, and it was a publication from last year or it might have been 2018, I can't remember, but it's called Medications for Opioid Use Disorder Save Lives. 
And it's a rather lengthy document, but it has some really good sort of bulleted points that summarizes the state of the science and gaps and barriers to care, as well as strategies for improvement. And I think those are probably like the two largest kind of like national level documents that are useful and helpful. In terms of clinicians, I would say that there's two resources. One is that SAMHSA has a national helpline that's for referrals. It's also for patients. It's 1-800-662-HELP. And I would say, and they, I work for UCSF also, so I would say another excellent and underutilized resource is the National Clinician Consultation Center, which has a substance use warm line. This is HRSA funded. It's free. Any provider can call and provider can be a very, is a very broad term. It's basically anyone who's not a patient. And that number is 855-300-3595. And somebody answers the phone from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. There's voicemails if you call outside of there. And there's a web-based access as well. And any question related to substance use, misuse, addiction, you ask a question and somebody will call you right back and walk you through the, you know, walk you through it. And so I think that's a great resource so that nobody should feel alone or isolated or not know what to do. Literally, a help is a phone call away for providers. Well, this has been a great conversation, but unfortunately, our time is almost up today. But before we say goodbye, Dr. Turplin, can you give us what you would say are your top three takeaways from this conversation for our listeners going forward? Yeah, sure. First, I would say substance use, misuse, and addiction are common across all domains of healthcare, including Title X. And there's a resonance between behavioral health and reproductive and sexual health. Two, I really like that National Academy of Medicine, medications for opioid use disorder save lives. And they can be provided in you know heterogeneous settings. They work in every single setting ever studied. And that also includes within Title X. And then the third, I think we really need to shift focus from addiction to recovery. And I haven't really defined or talked actually enough about recovery in this podcast, but recovery is a lot more than drug abstinence. It's about connection, community, purpose, citizenship, and serenity. And I think it's really important for providers to know that not only does treatment work, uh, but that recovery is possible and that you probably are surrounded by people in recovery. And because of the stigma and discrimination to the disease state, you just don't know that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Turplin, and for sharing your time and expertise with us. For more content, search for the Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. This podcast is supported by award number 5 FPTPA 00602920-02-00 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS, OASH, or OPA. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. 
other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files.